weighty yet wrong decision or opinion that was given back in 1973. Uh, the decision of Roe v. Wade on January 22nd, coming up next Saturday. And that was another thing I wanted just to quickly mention. After the appreciation um, time in the morning, uh, Pro-Life Ministries is hosting and, and uh, leading a Jericho March. Um, this coming Saturday, we will start the march at the Building for Women uh, at 4.30. And uh, then after the march, we are all um, going to head over to Duluth Gospel Tabernacle Church and uh, going to have a supper and then uh, also hear from many of the pro-life uh, collaborative agencies here in the, um, the Twin Ports just for them to give an update. But again, today, <clears throat> and as we, we come up against that, that date, the, uh, the memory of, of Roe v. Wade, we recognize that this may be the last year that we need to, uh, to mourn that decision. We, Pro-Life Ministries and other ministries throughout the, um, the land, pray for greater rulings and higher opinions to replace and erase the wrong decisions that have been made over our nation. In Psalm 22, as we are going to dive into in just a moment, we see David, King David, uh, bearing up under the weight of dark injustice and horrible circumstances. As we look and listen to King David in just a moment, we'll see King Jesus' sufferings on the cross clearly foreshadowed. And in the midst of horror, David, the king, prefigures Jesus the king. And I would proclaim that then hope rises out of the horror of these circumstances to produce everlasting life. Just before we dive in, though, here I would like to pray. Would you join again in prayer? Lord, if I could ask you for just one thing this morning, I would echo the desire of Psalm 27 that we sang earlier, that we could so abide in your word and your word could so abide in us that we would be dwelling in your presence all the days of our lives and that gazing on your beauty, Lord, would so capture us that nothing would distract us or pull our eyes from being ever on you. You have said, seek my face, God. And my heart confesses, I have sought the power of your right arm to spend on my pet projects. I have sought the cleansing of your forgiving blood with no intent of repenting. I've sought the sweetness and the comfort of being held securely in your hand while groping for a hundred other ropes and harnesses of security. I've sought the answers to a doctrinal point or a hard question in the Christian faith. But Lord, I have not sought your face. Your face, O oh Lord, today we do resolve to seek. Early, late, and everywhere in between. We seek your face and your word, your creation and your people. Thank you for not hiding your face from us, Father. Give us faith to seek your faith and to, see, to seek your face and to see the godly anger and compassionate mercy in your eyes. The kind response, patient understanding of your straining ears. The beauty and the blessing of your frown and smile. The kind and terrifying sword of your parched and swollen tongue and lips speaking out the eternally beautiful words, it is finished. Your face, O oh God, we do seek. 
May this glimpse, may this glimpse that we get of your face, O oh God, gain for us an unction from the Holy Spirit of Christ that you would speak to us, that you would speak through us, and that you would speak in spite of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like us to consider several common experiences that I see here in Psalm 22 that King David experiences and, and, and uh, prefigures King Jesus. But I'd like to see how those experiences have in common something to be shared with the preborn of our generation, those that are literally at risk of, of life and death because of the warning and the, the danger of abortion. As we consider some of these common experiences, I think that God embraces with the preborn, my aim is that the value and protection of people within the womb would increase among us as a congregation, and that perhaps we would even identify in a small sense uh, similarly with the preborn here this morning, that we'd maybe capture a, a glimpse or a feel of what it would be like. Mark Twain's, one of his first attempts at historical fiction, The Prince and the Pauper, tells the tale of uh, two young boys who happen to be born on the same day and look identical, one of them being the Prince of Wales, one of them being uh, the son of a, a drunken man poor in the, the city of London. And this to the tale goes that um, these two boys meet and uh, recognize their likenesses and they end up changing their clothes and living in one another's worlds for a season. And uh, Mark Twain says at the beginning of the book, this is a tale that may have happened. It's a tale that may not have happened, but it could have happened. And I want to proclaim Psalm 22 as the reality. This is what has happened. Our God, Jesus Christ, has taken on flesh and has looked exactly like us so that he could identify with the human race. This is good news for us, church. This is good news. Two questions before we dive in here. What are the common experiences that Jesus and, and David and the preborn have? And secondly, how do these common experiences then cause hope to rise in the midst of horror? The suffering of death, um, the, the, the suffering of abortion now within our own day. I see four ways this king of glory identifies with preborn people. I'll list them and then we'll just go through and unpack them. Um, the first is King David and Jesus and preborn people are persecuted, but they are not forsaken. Secondly, they are caught in a trap in which the only way of escape is into the very hands of the ones who are seeking to kill them. Thirdly, they are helpless, but not hopeless. And finally, they are aware of and anticipating a fuller and more wonderful life of glorious worship in the future, but they're kept from it in the present. Number one, verses one through eight, I see these things unfolding. And, and don't miss here as we jump in here as, as David is has sharing his heart and pouring out of his, his heart here. He, he, is, he is singing. He is singing about these things. Remember, uh, maybe a few months ago, Dan and, and I were talking about singing about grace and singing about mercy and how, you know, some things are easier to sing about. Mercy is, grace is easy to sing about. Mercy is a little tougher. Well, I, I think to myself today, try singing about 
horror. Try, try singing about the, 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 um, the face of enemies right in, in front of you and the potential of death. But David begins by calling out in song, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's taking the, the name of God, the, 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 the high and holy God, and he's, he's using a personal pronoun to, to, to recognize that this is not just some eternal force out there that, that nobody can really know. This is my personal God. This is my God. Do, do we recognize, church, the, the value and the blessing of being able to address the King of glory as my God, my God, and, and to outpour our hearts in such a manner? Whatever we are experiencing here, for David, it's groaning. It's painful, mind numbing, groaning that he's calling out before God. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but you f I find no rest. David had come to know the intimacy and the joy and the closeness of a relationship with God. He spent many days and hours in the sweetness of deep communion with God. And he met God in the quiet wilderness as he cared for the sheep. And he cultivated his ears during those moments to know and to recognize the voice of God and his character and his nature. And so it is no stretch in my mind when he comes to the... Um, the assembly of the Philistines versus Israel, and he hears the giant Goliath blaspheming this God, blaspheming and threatening God's people or God's sheep. It's not a stretch for me to, to understand that David just immediately did the same thing that he had learned to do when he was a shepherd. He, he went to defend the sheep. So out he goes, and he defends the sheep. He goes out against Goliath, intimately running with God into the battlefield, ready to offer up his hand and his weapon and his faith to stand against the enemies of God. David was able to do that because he had an intimate relationship with God. Off he went. And he slew David. We'll, we'll talk about him in just a moment later. The same experience. That he had learned to trust God. But now he feels forsaken. You may remember the gut-wrenching drama of 2 Samuel 16-19. through 19, Where David's own son, Absalom, turns against him and seeks to take the throne away from his father. And is after him to kill him. And so David runs. We, we see him running and, and escaping from Enemies, even from within and without. Here it's one of his own family. And at the end of that uh, gut-wrenching drama, we see David mourning. Oh, my son, my son Absalom, would that I have died instead of you. No one is exempt from these painful moments. No one has the ability to, to hide or to cloister or to avoid or even to ignore, try to ignore 
these painful moments where intimacy is broken and, and perhaps even those closest to us have turned and caused and created great hurt within our lives. They happen between parents and children. They happen between covenant married wife and husband. They happen within church families and there are hateful words and actions brought forth and caused to weigh heavy upon our hearts. These dark times come and God is with us in the midst of them. In fact, God comes to identify with us very much in the midst of these painful moments. David is pouring out his heart and in groaning towards God. But then notice in verses 3 through 5 how David seems to have one of these Psalms 73 entering into the sanctuary of the living God moments. You see that there where it says, yet you are holy. He's, he's said, God, you're not answering my prayer. I've been praying at daytime. I've been praying at nighttime. I've been trying to do everything I can. And you're just not, you're just not listening. You're not hearing my prayers. Verse 3 says, yet you are holy enthroned. You are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted and they trusted in you and you delivered them. <laughs> Remember that, God? Remember delivering us? To you they cried and they were rescued and you they trusted and, and they were not put to shame. In fact, they were lifted out of shame and, and they were put uh, with a, a wonderful headdress and a, a wonderful oil for their head and they were given a brand new land. Remember that, God? David enters into the sanctuary and he sees God high and lifted. He recognizes again the praiseworthiness of God despite the, the, the chasm between his experiences. And he praises God. He remembers. He remembers. Church, one of the, the weapons, one of the divine weapons that Corinthians talks about that God has given us um, that devours and destroys strongholds, Satan's strongholds, and, and the lofty thoughts and, and weighty opinions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. He's given us weapons to demolish these things. One of those weapons is the weapons of remembering. Remember, church. Remember. Go back and remember how God has delivered you. Go back and remember how his power met you where? You were and pulled you out of the slimy pit that you were in. Remember. And then almost as instantly as David seems transported to the throne room of God's presence, he's brought low again by the constant reminder of the scornful looks and the scornful statements of the world. Look there in verse 6. David comes back. He says, but I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. This imagery of a worm, and I, I, um, I found an interesting, uh, real specific application that points towards Christ. There, there was a specific worm that was scarlet in color. That would, as it was preparing to lay its eggs and, and uh, um, uh, provide the, the new, new worms, uh, would attach itself to a tree or to some form of wood, and it would be in such a manner that it would be un, uh, impossible to, to separate that worm from the wood without destroying the worm. And, the, and then the worm would, it would lay its eggs underneath its body, 
And as it did so, and as the worm began to, to die and decay, the scarlet color from its body would seep into the wood of, of the tree, and it would, would pre present this, this splotch of red, scarlet, crimson, or this um, draining or, or, or dripping of red, scarlet wisdom. Certainly this is a, a picture of Christ who embraced the cross and brought life to all of those sons and daughters who turned to him by faith. But I find it also interesting here that David refers to himself as a worm. A worm. Somewhat of a worthless, defenseless, simple organism that would be perhaps considered not much more than a clump of cells. An invertebrate, just a clump of, of cells put together. And how this phrase has long now been um, almost discarded regarding the preborn. This, this clump of cells was once an argument that, that, that struck deep, deep um, wickedness and deep pain into the potential of life for the preborn. It's not so much used anymore. Um, the, the pictures that we have now of, of children within the womb and the, the, the ability to see the, the, the development of the, the children within the womb, um, even doctors and, and uh, evolutionary um, scientists now are, are not claiming that it is only a clump of cells because they know so much better they are willing to see. But here David acknowledges himself as a worm. Again, identifying with the reality of the preborn. David was persecuted and he felt forsaken. But take a look, skip a forward with me to verses 24 and 26. And they reveal here that God was faithfully with David at all times. Even though David said, why have you forsaken me? David realized, God hasn't forsaken me. Look there in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. <laughs> Hallelujah. He has not hidden his face from us, but he has heard when he cried to him. David knew that Christ was with him in the midst of it all. He, how did he know that? Well, he probably recognized through the writings of, of <clears throat> the uh, Old Testament prophets that God's promise would be to be with his people all throughout their days. Joshua wrote it at the beginning of his book that I am the Lord your God. I will be with you. And David now seems to be brought back to somewhat of a hope in knowing that God really is there. Christ and David and the preborn can confidently sing, I have been crushed, but I have not been forsaken. I have been persecuted, but I have not been left alone. The preborn 
will stand and joyfully sing before the throne of God above. God is my strength. God is my deliverer. God is my hope. Yes, I was crushed, but I was not forsaken. A second common experience I see in King David and the king of kings and the preborn is the way that they are caught in a trap in which the only way out is into the very hands of the ones seeking to kill them. Verses 12 now through 21, I see glimpses of David's enemies surrounding and trapping him as the bulls of, of Bashan. They prepare to charge and the lions with their teeth bared are ready to pounce and devour. David had run from his position and his home to hide in the wilderness and hide in caves and, and uh, enemy cities, even to escape. In fact, had we returned to 1 Samuel today, we'd, we'd be uh, looking at a passage where David is hiding in the cave. And, and God brings Saul and his thousands of soldiers pursuing him right to that very same cave. And it's, it's almost as if David is trapped and, and there's no way out. There's no way of escape. And yet it, it's the opposite that happens. God actually brought David's enemies into his very own hands. And he had the potential there to strike. And we'll hear more of that next week, I hope, or in the coming weeks. But David here is, for the moment, trapped within the cave in which the only way out is straight into the hands of the very one seeking to kill him. Christ himself also was surrounded by enemies. The dogs and compass David and Christ to pierce their hands and feet and to rip their skin so far gone that you see in verse 17 there, the Savior could look down and count all his bones. Then in verse 18, it describes the cruel shame of seeing the soldiers and those plundering and gambling for the, the last belongings that David and Christ had. Even the king's garments being um, gambled for, casting lots for them, fulfilled the prophecies and reminded people of the high priestly clothing that was pointed, pointing to the wealth of life that was being poured out as a fragrant offering to the righteous uh, robes that Christ's substitution provided for mankind. Even to those who were yet unborn, as we see in verse 31. It's an interesting phrase there that we'll come back to as well, but... The righteousness that God made, his righteous robes, are provided. It's God who has done it. He's providing them, and all that's ready or left for us to do is, is simply to receive and to wear, even for those who are yet unborn. When children who have been killed in the womb stand before God above, they will not outscar their risen Savior. They will see and worship Christ the King who allowed himself to be entrapped and destroyed by the hands of men who poured out their anger and their fear upon the one who was mighty to save. Preborn people will boast, as in verse 21 here. Take a look at that one. They'll tell God's name to their brothers and praise God in the congregation of heaven. For Christ surrendered himself to the hands of sinful men that all may be free. I see they were persecuted, not forsaken, caught in a trap, and the, way, the only way out uh, was into the hands of those who were ready to kill them. And then thirdly, I see the king of kings sharing the experience with the preborn um, facing abortion is that they were, they were helpless, but not hopeless. I see this in verse 
8 through 19 here. There are several places. Notice again in verse 8 how confident the enemies of David are of his destruction. How unbelieving they are of God's existence. And unbelieving of his presence and power to help. Do you see that there in verse 8? They're saying to David, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're, they're mocking David. They're mocking Christ because they haven't realized that this is not the end. This is not the end. And they haven't realized that God is going to win in the end. Even as David stood before King Saul, partially cowering under Goliath's blasphemy, and, and, and he looks at David before him, a ruddy youth, and he himself faithlessly thinks of David. He is helpless and hopeless. He offers him his weapon, but play his weapons and, and um, play the video in your head just for a moment as David stands there before Saul and recounts how God had delivered him from the paw of the lion. God had delivered him from the paw of the bear. And, and finally, when David is ready to go and face Goliath, Saul says, go and the Lord be with you. I think faithlessly, he says, go and the Lord be with you. Can we not hear, perhaps in the sediments of Saul's words, the taunting that these evil men at the cross said, go, let the Lord, let the Lord deliver you. I don't believe it, but go. And David, of course, goes in faith. Matthew 27, the gospel account where the priests and the Pharisees and the um, leading men despise Christ. They mock Christ by saying, he saved others, let him save himself now. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him. David went to battle against Goliath without the help of his brothers. We know his brothers despised him for being there. He went without the protection of King Saul. He went without an armor bearer. But he did not go to face Goliath without hope. With faith, he whispered the prayer of, of verse 11. Look at that in Psalm 22 here. Oh God, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. And then confidently, David goes with a sling in his hand, and he says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. David's got a sling in his hand. You ever thought about what was he planning on cutting off Goliath's head with? We know that God indeed did give Goliath into David's hand and he used Goliath's own sword to sever his head from his body. Faith ignited a bold move in battle against the enemies of God and God got the glory. So the escorts and the doctors and the administrators who cheer on the killing of helpless children say, God must be unable God must be uh, unwilling to save the children. 
But the contrast, this helpless and hopeless mindset of the unbelieving with David's faith in verses 9 through 11. Look at those closely again. David turns again to this one that he knows intimately, God, and says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breaths. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. This pre-birth faith that seems to be alluded to here in just, just a small way, yet you are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. It's alluded to here, and I think it's made more tangible in Psalm 71, verse 6, when the psalmist writes, Upon you I have leaned from before my birth, and you are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. There's a pre-birth engagement that happens. It happens there. It's, it's what we ask God to mercifully give to children who are scheduled. And we know they're going to go right past us into this building. We pray that God would pour out faith and would bring about his righteous judgment and his eternal salvation for those who are helpless but not hopeless. Verses 14 through 15 and 19 again vividly describe the helplessness of David and Christ until resurrection power is poured out upon and in them. But you, O Lord, come quickly to my aid. David says, the aid that David and the preborn there need for salvation is secured through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the empty tomb, because he is not there, he is risen. One final way that I see God, the King, exalting the sanctity of life and identifying with the preborn here in facing death is how they each have an awareness of and an anticipation of a fuller life of praise in the present tense, but, but they're kept from it. They're kept from it. Look again now with me towards the end of the psalm in verses 26 through 31. In the midst of the horror that they're experiencing, David and Jesus envision the coming of God's kingdom in power. And in fullness, they long to join the great congregation and worship in fullness the God who saves and lives forever. Listen now with insight. Listen, listen for the, the hope and the future that, that just blasts out of these verses, 25 to the following and following towards the end of the chapter. Just listen for the, the future hope that comes out. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. David's hiding in a cave. Christ is hanging on the cross. The preborn are awaiting. And there's an anticipation that I am going to stand once again in the presence of God the Father.
I'm going to stand in the congregation of God's people. And I'm going to let my voice speak out praises to my God. That's a hope and a future. Continuing on, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. All those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Can you imagine a better verse that would, that would highlight this, this picture of a global or a, a universal worship gathering where all men, all women would stand before God and acknowledge his authority. See how God is anticipating, Jesus is anticipating a worldwide worship service. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him they shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. All the nations will seek to proclaim that the righteousness of God is available because the righteous one, Jesus Christ, became sin and endured the wrath of God so that we might experience the righteousness of God and only the life that Jesus deserved to live, even those who were yet unborn, the preborn. Certainly the last words of Christ on the cross count as certain the awareness that there was a greater and fuller life of worship and praise to come in the future. Though they were not presently experienced, Christ saw them through the glass dimly. Listen again to some of these statements that were made from the cross and hear in them the glory of future praise. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Today, later on today, you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. It is finished. It is finished. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. There is a hope that grows and that just explodes out of the darkness and the horror that Christ and King David and the preborn experience. So the preborn instinctively long for a great and more abundant life as well. They have been fashioned to receive nourishment, grow and yearn for more to come. They grow agitated and they seek escape from instruments of death that invade the womb. They, they can recognize a sense of danger and, and, and they, they, they just instinctively turn away, long to escape. Yet most of the preborn die and they go to God and they find their rescue and righteousness and fuller life of praise in the presence of the king who identified with them that he might take their place and provide his life 
in return. My aim today is just to cause us to see that God is able to cause hope to rise from the darkest of injustices, both in the cross and of abortion and perhaps what other dark experiences that you are facing today. I recognize that darkness, the darkness of the cross or perhaps the darkness, darkness of abortion or um, it might be sending out a cloud over your mind and, and over your heart today in a way that's keeping you from seeing anything else or finding hope or recognizing that there is life and light and mercy that's available to you. I remind you, I remind you, I pick up the weapon of reminders that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he had for us, loved us even when we were dead in transgressions and sin. And he made us alive together with Christ. If he can do that when we are in a state of, of being separated from him and blind and dead and headed in the wrong direction, we've got nothing going for us. If he can reach down and, and rescue us and bring light and mercy and grace and hope and healing there, he can do it in any other circumstance that we face today. I offer you the mercy of God. I offer you to drink deeply of the mercy of God. To receive it. To share it. And to magnify it by boasting in how good God has been. Perhaps you're facing injustice this morning. Or persecution in some way that you would like to share that burden with somebody here in the body of Christ today. Christ is here. God is here. He's waiting to hear you share your burden. Just as David opened up this psalm this morning. The body of Christ is here. We are here. The people of God are here to listen. Share the burden. I encourage you to come after the service or to, to catch up with someone here today to share the burden that is on your heart and find that God's mercy is rich. Hear that as the call of kingdom faithfulness, the call to respond to the rule and the reign of Christ, the call of kingly love. I invite you to join in song now as we uh, close our service.